Well, why don't we turn to the, uh, the book of Romans. And as you're turning, I'd ask you not to look too carefully at me. Uh, I was on my way to church this morning, and I took my mug of coffee and took a big swig out of it, forgetting that I had forgotten to screw in the top. And so it went all over me, and I rushed home and, you know, washed off and got Julie's hair dryer, but I'm sure there are some spots uh, left. And I don't know about you, but as each, with each passing year, I'm more and more grateful that God loves me in spite of my faults and foibles and my failures. It reminds me of my mother, who was in an assisted care center for a number of years before she passed away. And she really declined, and she uh, uh, did some things uh, that... Uh, I think uh, once she said something that showed she had forgotten yet again and her, her caregiver got kind of upset at her and she looked at her and, and had loving, with her loving eyes, she looked at her and said, I just thank God that he loves me the way I am. And he loves you that way too. You know, our kids can get upset at us as we grow older because we're not the way we used to be. And that's hard for them when they see us forget things or do stupid things. But I'm sure thankful more and more with each passing year that he loves me just the way I am. And that's what we're going to be talking about today if you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. We come today to what... Uh, once, uh, once again, to what many theologians have called the most important paragraph in the Bible. Martin Luther wrote that here we have the chief point, the very central place of the book of Romans and of the whole Bible. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan divine, wrote that what we have here is the very hinge and pillar of true Christianity. It's the plan of redemption, which is why we've been unpacking this paragraph phrase by phrase, word by word. And today we come to what really is at the heart of the paragraph, the heart of the plan, and that is the loving heart of the Father who loves us unconditionally just the way we are. Starts in verse 24 where Paul says that we've been justified. We spent two weeks there as a gift by his grace through the redemption, another two weeks, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That was last week, in his blood through faith. And then he goes on to say this. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, and here it is, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the faults and foibles and failures of the human race. In the forbearance, the fatherly forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Paul's talking about really the wellspring of our redemption here, and that is the Father's love. Paul says that for eons on end, in his patience and kindness and forbearance, he's been passing over our wickedness, waiting for us to come home, wooing us home to him, home to the heart that's at the heart of the plan, the soul's true home, the heart of the Father. We've looked at these great doctrines of justification and redemption and propitiation. Well, today we'll see as, uh, that, uh, that by far the greatest of these, as Paul said, the greatest even of justification, redemption, and propitiation, the source of these is love. Henry Nouwen once wrote a book about the prodigal son. 
where he sums it up. He says that there's a prodigal in us all who the Father wants to come home. But even once we become Christians, once we come home to him, we still stray from home. From the soul's true home that we'll be looking at today. He said, leaving home is much more than the historical event when we were in our early 20s, bound to time and place when we left our mothers and fathers. Leaving home is a denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being, that God holds me safe in an eternal embrace, that I am indeed carved into the palm of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home is living as though I do not have a home and I must look far and wide to find one. Home is the center of my being where I can hear the Father's voice, the voice that says, you are my beloved. At first, this sounds simply unbelievable, and yet I am a prodigal, and I stray from his arms. I stray every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found, whether in a spouse or a friend or a career or wherever. But why do I do this? Why should I leave the place where all I need is to hear of his love and to experience his love? Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I am called a child of God, the beloved of my Father? The more I think about this question, the more I realize that the Father's voice is a very soft and gentle voice, speaking to me in the most hidden places of my being. It is not a boisterous voice, forcing itself on me and demanding intention. No, I am loved so much that I am free to leave home that I may learn to choose him. Today we're gonna learn to choose him by coming home to him and by staying there. It's what our passage today is all about, uh, Romans 3. And again, it centers on verse 25, halfway through the verse, where Paul says, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He has a predisposition to forgive no matter what our faults or foibles or failures, and to love us unconditionally. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Far more than you may know, we have a God who passes over sin because he's a a heavenly father. He's the kind of father who's just waiting for us to call who's waiting with open arms for us to come, for us to come home to him no matter what we've done. And we can rest in those arms all the days of our lives, especially as we grow older as our true home where he's always embracing us. We've seen that the overall idea in this section is that The secret of salvation, of being embraced by God as though we were his own son, is to truly repent from what we've done and simply accept what Christ did. And if that's the secret of our salvation, then today we come to the source. The source, uh, to the source of our salvation, which is a kind of love that will go to any extreme to justify more mercy towards us. We learn two things about the Father in this passage. The first has to do with his forbearance. 
And the second has to do with his justice. And those will be our two simple points today. First, his forbearance. What does that mean? Well, Paul defines it here. In the forbearance of God, he says, he passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over our sins. That is, he has been letting a whole lot slide. And it doesn't at all affect his love lavishing us with a love that we don't deserve, and he's been doing it from the beginning. You see this all through Scripture. In Psalm 119, 64, for instance, it says, The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. In spite of all that mankind has been doing, the earth is still full of his mercy from the rising of the sun to its setting. In spite of all that we continue to do, in spite of it all, the steadfast love of the Lord, Lamentations 3.22, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, Matthew 5, 45, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Acts 7, 14, 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, yet not leaving himself without a witness in that he did good and give you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Why? Acts 17, 25. He gives to all life and breath and all things, overlooking the times of ignorance, with, uh, withholding justice, that they should seek God, for he is not far from any one of us, that we should come to him. The whole world is like this horn of plenty, a, a cornucopia of good things from the Father. And it's been that way from the beginning, since the fall of Adam. We've not been getting anything remotely like what we deserve. Just like David said, for if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? Not one of us. We'd be wiped off the face of the earth, Psalm 103, 5. Uh, 130, verse three. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, Lamentations 3, 34. Why? Because in his forbearance, he's a God who passes over sin. Now, this kind of forbearance is the exact opposite of our human tendencies, if you're anything like me. Love that is proactive and not just reactive. Our love can be so reactive. I think that this, the phrase falling in love is a very telling phase because so often love is something that we do just kind of fall into and out of. We can be so thoughtlessly, so mindlessly reactive to others and uh, reflective of what's going on with them to the point that we just mirror whatever's around us. It starts at an early age. So when your parents, for instance, gave you what you wanted or when you wanted to get something from them, out of you came something that looked like love. And that happens even with our adult children. When they need money or whatever, they can be nicer to us. And that's hard to experience. Like, it's so conditional. And those of us who are parents have all experienced this with our kids. And sometimes when our kids, when they were smaller, did the smallest things that bugged us, not to mention big things. Or if we, if we weren't careful, out came kind of a nagging or a needling or a venting or even an exploding until it was like a cloud over their head and over ours too, over our homes. And the cloud came, can come over a whole church when we treat each other 
like this. But the Father's love is not reactive, but proactive in the purest and the cleanest and the most unaffected way. So often our love is kind of like Pavlov's dog. Remember Pavlov's dog? Stimulus response. But his love is a, re- <laughs> is a response that doesn't depend on a stimulus. It's an internal effect without an external cause because God is love. That's why when Daniel confessed the sins of Israel and asked God's forgiveness, he said this, we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own. No stimulus in us for your love. But on the account just of your great compassion. Or David, be gracious to me, O God, according to what I deserve? No, according to your loving kindness, Psalm 51.1. According to the greatness of your compassions, blot out my transgressions. Again and again, you'll hear them say, have mercy on me, O God, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. So often, our love is 50-50. You do 50%, I'll do 50%. It's only fair. You do your part, I'll do mine. But the history of redemption proves that it's never 50-50 with him. And good thing, because we don't have it in us to hold up the shortest end of any deal to do even 1% on our own. At least not for very long. God's love does not require an object that's worthy of his love. And good thing, because there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. God's love never needs positive reinforcement and good thing because you won't find much of that down here. No, rather, quite the opposite. His heart melts when there's negative reinforcement. It melts at the sight of our sin. Yes, there's righteous indignation, but under it all, there's also relentless, even reckless compassion, as we've been seeing to the point that even in wrath, there is mercy. His wrath is a reckless love to bring us to our senses. It seems that God's love comes out most of all when there's negative reinforcement, when we don't deserve it, and that glorifies him like nothing else. One man called it unconquerable benevolence, which we so need as parents and grandparents. It's like the song that I was listening to on the Christian radio this morning, who am I to be loved by you? I don't understand where your love comes from. Where does his love come from? Well, Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, a contemporary of Spurgeon, Uh, put it this way. He said, there is no reason whatsoever for God's love except God's will. We love because of something in the object on which our love falls, either because of their relationship to us uh, or of their character or of their visible form. God loves because he cannot help it. God loves because he is God. Our love is drawn out, pulled out by the application of external causes. His love bursts out, self-originated, undeserved. It comes spontaneously, driven by its own fullness and welling up, unasked, unprompted, unmerited, and therefore, like my mother said, never to be turned away by our evil or our faults or our foibles or our failures. 
never to be wearied by our indifference, never to be brushed aside by our negligence. It is the fixed, eternal, unalterable center of the divine nature. Thank God. Just like we sang, streams of mercy never ceasing, springing from eternal love. You know, you may be under the cloud of someone's condemnation right now, maybe from your own kids or your spouse or wherever. And maybe that cloud has been there a long time. Maybe it comes from your past and the way your parents treated you. But it doesn't matter who you are or who your parents were, if you truly repent of who you are and simply accept who Christ is and what he's done, you'll find your true home in the bosom of the Father who at the core of his being is compassionate and gracious, as he told Moses, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And we need that too from one another because while we do need to speak the truth in love to one another, while we do need to work things through when there's conflicts, whether in our marriage or in our church, uh, we also need to let a whole lot slide. We better do that. If our children and brothers and sisters and friends are going to thrive and not live under some cloud. If we as a congregation are going to thrive. And you make that possible through a love that takes a forgiving posture toward every sin. Just like he does. A fatherly forbearance that has a predisposition to forgive. Even as we work through conflict, God knows we need a kind of love that covers a multitude of sins, Proverbs 10, 12. And here we have it, because it's available to you and me, as we'll see. So, in his mercy, he's been letting a whole lot slide ever since the fall of Adam to this very day. But the time finally came for God to prove that he wasn't, you know, just this indulgent grandfather in the sky who winks at sin. The time came for him to show that he wasn't, as C.S. Lewis said, a senile benevolence, which many people, he said, think he is. A senile benevolence who drowsily wishes each of us to be happy in our own way. No, that's not God. The time came to demonstrate his righteousness, back to our verse for today, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That is, he'd been so compassionate and so gracious for so long, so slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness that saints and angels alike were calling for him to justify all that mercy, to prove that he wasn't soft on sin. You'll find this complaint all through scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. For thousands upon thousands of years, they'd seen such forbearance when it came to man's wickedness that it called into question his righteousness, whether he was truly just and fair. In fact, the whole reason why he was so forbearing for so long because, was because that's how long it took to complete a plan that would justify even more mercy. And how did he do that? 
Well, we've seen the Father's forbearance toward us. Let's move now to part two. The Father's justice toward him. Toward Christ. Toward his only begotten Son. Moving on, it's the beginning of verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly to show that he wasn't soft on sin. He did this publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And what that means is this. Rather than proving that he was uh, just, you know, by destroying the world and sending us all to hell in a handbasket as we deserved, uh, rather than serving up the justice that was due us, he justified his continued mercy on us by crucifying his son who paid the penalty for us. Rather than serving up the justice that was due us, he justified his continued mercy on us by crucifying Christ. He took down the only one who was righteous in order to buy us more time to truly repent and simply accept his very unique brand of justice. We have a father who spent his wrath on the only one who was utterly worthy of his love to spare those who were utterly unworthy of his love. In fact, who were totally unlovable. We have a father who was merciless on the one who was altogether lovely so he could be merciful toward those who were altogether ugly. For he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And that means that such is the Father's love that he didn't stop with our complete forgiveness. No, he would only stop at our complete righteousness that we could become the righteousness of God. Back to Romans 3, verse 26. Such was the greatness of his loving kindness that it got to the place that he had to demonstrate his righteousness while at the same time making possible our righteousness through the greatness of his loving kindness. And so it says he displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in our sin for the demonstration of his righteousness, moving on, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who just has faith in Jesus. Unbelievable. This is one of the most simple but profound verses in all of Scripture. This is nothing less than a, a stroke of genius, a master stroke. It's a brilliant sleight of a very powerful and loving hand that he might be just and the justifier of the one who just has faith in Jesus. You might say he wanted to have his cake and eat it too, to justify us without making a mockery of justice. To make it as though we had never sinned without being in the slightest soft on sin. And so it all had to be at Christ's expense. As we said a few weeks ago, he wouldn't settle just for our pardon. No, he was after our justification. Only a complete exoneration would do. And not just that, that would result in our perfection and ultimately our glorification. Such is his loving kindness. 
Such was his mercy that he wanted to love us as though it had never happened, as though we had never sinned without being unfair. And he worked things out so we could have a whole new identity by, as we've seen, imputing to us all that Christ did as our representative. So that when you truly repent of who you are and what you've done and simply accept who he is and what he's done, he can then be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Without ever once winking at sin, he now holds us in his bosom. Christ came to bring us to the Father, according to Peter, as though we had never sinned. And it doesn't change as we grow older. He loves us as though we have already become what we will one day be, a destiny that he guarantees, all thanks to the the agony of his son. You know, all we can do when we see that is just to say how deep the Father's love for us, which we're going to close with today, actually, in a bit, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch, a worm, his treasure. Some of the most powerful hymns of the faith are about this. We sang of it this morning, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, how does this apply? Well, there's a lesson here in more ways than one, in this one who lets a whole lot slide. It's, it's the wellspring of everything. And so it applies in almost every way. Let me just take a random example. For one thing, there's a parenting lesson here. A lesson for us parents and grandparents. Clay Trumbull wrote a classic book on child rearing that was published about 100 years ago. And it's well worth reading. The chapter 9 is titled, Letting Alone. Letting alone as a means of child training. Child training is a necessity, he writes, but there is a danger of overdoing it, and that may be the greater evil. These days, underdoing it, obviously, is also a great evil, where kids are running undisciplined. But for some, overdoing it is also the issue. He tells about one father who had heard a lot about the importance of discipline. So he deemed it his duty to be constantly directing and checking his child. But to his surprise, he found that she started to descend into this kind of chronic resistance to whatever he said. It wasn't overt rebellion. It was more passive resistance, passive aggressiveness, and it was very real. She, she wouldn't refuse exactly to obey, but she wasn't a very, very ready or prompt to obey either. And more often than not, she'd just forget what he told her to do. And she started to turn inward until it was like there was this cloud over her. Where do you think that came from? Wherever she went. He asked a friend who was older than him for advice about what to do with his child who had grown so morose and so sullen. His friend said this, is it possible that you are overdoing it? I'm afraid 
I harmed my first child, said his friend, for life by overdoing it. Getting down on her all the time, forcing issues with her, taking notice of little things when I would have done better to let her alone more and to focus on what she was doing well and to build a relationship with her. Because she became shut up within herself and took on a rigid and unnatural air which ought not to have been hers. And so I allowed my other children more freedom. Trumbull concludes after telling this story in chapter nine with this. There are many parents who suppose that their chief work is to be incessantly commanding and prohibiting, telling the child to do this or that and not to do this, that, or the other. But this is not training. This is nagging. And it is destructive to training. Of course, there must be explicit commanding and explicit prohibiting in the process of child training, but there must also be a large measure of wise letting alone after the example of the Father in heaven. Yes, he disciplines us consistently and effectively as we've seen in Romans 1 and 2, but he also lets a whole lot slide. And thanks to his forbearance, he never loses it in his discipline. Maybe there's a cloud over your life, too, because of a parent or a spouse or a friend. Maybe you're a parent and you're bringing the same cloud over your children or grandchildren or have done that in the past. Well, all is not lost because the Father's love stays the same and is always available. Doesn't matter who you are or who your parents were. If you truly repent of who you are, and maybe you need to repent with your adult children too, and simply accept who he is, just like the prodigal did, that cloud of condemnation can disappear. And the skies can clear over your home and you can be filled with compassion yourself if you stay in his arms, if you dial down and tune into him every day in your devotions. If more and more all through the day you rest in him and nest in him and are fully blessed in him who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, we can be that way too with a forbearing love that covers a multitude of sins, just like in him we can do too, with a predisposition to forgive, with a love that's proactive and not just reactive. You know, a pastor I know back in Illinois put this another way, another way of applying to this. He said, out of parental concern and the desire to teach our younger son responsibility, We ask him to phone home when he arrives at his friend's house a few blocks away. But he began to forget as he grew more confident of his ability to get there without disaster befalling him. The first time he forgot, I called to be sure he had arrived. We told him the next time it happened, he would have to come home. But a few days later, the telephone lay silent, and I knew he would have to be punished. But I did not want to punish him. I went to the telephone feeling bad that his great time would be spoiled by his lack of contact with his father. As I dialed, I prayed for wisdom. This is making live contact with his unconditional love by praying. I prayed for wisdom, and I heard him say, treat him like I treat you. 
With that, as the telephone rang one time, I hung up. A few seconds later, the phone rang, and it was my son. I'm here, Dad. What took you so long to call, I asked. Well, we started playing, and I forgot. But, Dad, I heard the phone ring once, and I remembered. I'm glad you remembered, I said. Have fun. And then he concludes with this, how often do we think God is the one who waits to punish us when we step in the slightest out of line? I wonder how often he rings just once, hoping we'll phone home. He's been doing that ever since the fall of Adam, trying to get our attention through rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and a whole world that's full of his mercy who gives to all life and breath and all things, that they should seek God, that they should call home, that they might find him, for he is not far from any one of us, Acts 17, 24. Doesn't matter who or where you are or what you've done, the Father's deepest desire is just to hold you in his forbearing arms, who continues to exercise such forbearance toward us so that in his arms, we might do the same with one another. But if we don't stay in his arms, we can't do the same. At least not for long, because we don't have it in us, apart from him. It's like Amy Carmichael said. She was a missionary to the uh, lepers in India. She said, our love, all our love, flows from his heart of love. We are like little pools on the rocks when the great sea washes over them and floods them until they overflow. That is what the love of God does for us. We have no love in ourselves, and our pools would soon be empty if it were not for that great, glorious, exhaustive sea of love. My chief prayer is that your pools, she says, may be kept full to overflowing. One of the greatest mistakes we can make, said the great preacher of the 19th century, one of the greatest mistakes we can make is the refusal to let ourselves be loved by God. A child is a healthy child, not when he has no faults, but when it, he knows the security of great love from father or mother. So we are healthy children when we know ourselves to be surrounded by the love of our heavenly father. And so we can say in that nursing home, my father loves me no matter what I do, and he loves you that way too. We shall err. He says, and we shall sin and we shall doubt. But if we simply repent and come back again to Jesus Christ as the sure sign of the Father's love, we shall live from a secret inner center like a well that is ever being drawn on and keeps filling up. Whatever our age. And what is it like in that secret inner center? that's always available to us in the bosom of the Father where Christ came to bring us. Henry Nouwen put it this way at the end of the book I mentioned at the beginning on the prodigal son. And with this, I'll close. On the cover of the book is a reproduction of Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son who's in the arms of the Father. And Nouwen says this, the true center of Rembrandt's painting is the hands of the Father. On them, all the light in the painting is concentrated. 
From the moment I saw them, I felt drawn to those hands, though I did not fully understand why. But gradually over the years, I have come to know those hands. They have held me from the hour of my conception. They welcomed me at my birth, held me close to my mother's breath, fed me, and kept me warm. They have protected me in times of danger and consoled me in times of grief. They have waved me goodbye and always welcomed me back. Those hands are God's hands. And then he concludes, the parable of the prodigal son is a story that speaks about a love that existed before any rejection was possible and that will still exist there after all rejections have taken place. It is the first and everlasting love of a God who is a father. It is a fountain of all true human love. Jesus' whole life and preaching had only one aim, to bring us to the Father, as Peter said, to reveal the inexhaustible, unlimited love of his heavenly Father. Bottom line, well, it's very simple. Whatever we do, we need to stay in the Father's arms. That's the whole point of the plan of redemption. It's the whole purpose of the plan. As Christ said in his prayer to the Father, his last prayer, the great high priestly prayer, that the love, the purpose of the plan, that the love, Father, with which you loved me may be in them. There it is, John 17, 26. It's so simple. As uh, Steve, you could come forward. It's at the heart of the paragraph because it's the heart of the plan which began in the heart of the Father. For God so loved the world, this sums up our chapter for today, God so loved the world in his forbearance that he gave his only begotten Son in his justice.